This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer. Worldwide, I'm Libby Snymer. A doctor on the front lines of wellness and longevity tackles the question, can money buy health? And turning to the end of life, a place to go for patients who choose medical assistance in dying. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. More Canadians are hospitalized per day for health conditions and injuries caused by alcohol or drugs than for heart attacks and strokes combined. This according to new data from the Canadian Institute for Health Information. Kaihai recorded more than 156,000 hospital stays that were a direct result of substance use, including alcohol, cannabis, opioids and other drugs, between April 2017 and March 2018. That works out to more than 400 Canadians hospitalized per day with alcohol as the major cause of harm. Video calls between doctors and seniors in the UK have already prevented a 1,000 unnecessary visits and freed up 2,000 doctor's appointments. It's a trial unit that looks like a call center, but the people wearing the headsets are nurses on video calls with elderly people discussing and showing their ailments. Their work is estimated to have saved almost $2 million, which will be reinvested in frontline health care. With the U.S. election next year and an increasingly crowded field of candidates, nearly half of Democrats say the best age to be president is in their 50s. Democratic candidate 39-year-old Pete Buttigieg is 40 years younger than Bernie Sanders and 39 years younger than former Vice President Joe Biden. To put it in perspective, five candidates will be over 70 on January 2021 Inauguration Day and two will be under 40. By the way, Donald Trump was the oldest first-term president at 70 years and 222 days. A second World War aircraft that took part in the D-Day invasion in 1944 is returning to Europe for the 75th anniversary of the battle. Found in an aviation graveyard in Wisconsin and restored, the C-47 will drop paratrooper reenactors over the French coast next month. This year's D-Day commemoration could be the last great remembrance of the Allied attack to include D-Day veterans, many of whom are in their 90s. The two surviving Dion quintuplets celebrated their 85th birthdays this week. Annette and Cecile and their three sisters were thrust into the spotlight within hours of their birth on May 28, 1934, in northern Ontario. A decade ago, the surviving sisters and their families sued the province and received $4 million compensation for their childhood mistreatment. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a philosophical question as much as a practical one. 
Can Money Buy Health? It's the subject longevity and wellness guru Dr. Mark Laponis will tackle at Idea City later this month, and his experience makes his perspective truly unique. I have a unique experience around this because I've spent the last 25 years taking care of uh, America's wealthiest people, and uh, along the way, for seven years, been making uh, trips to northern Laos to take care of some of the poorest people in the world. And I've taken care of over 10,000 patients in Laos, and it's fascinating the differences that you see, not just in terms of their lifestyle and and the, the obvious economic differences, but how that translates into differences in health. It's really quite fascinating. What are the most striking differences that you see? Well, the food supply, of course. So, you know, what we found when we were working in Laos, which was a complete shock, was that they had uh, about four times the rate of diabetes as we have here in America. Really? Yes, and yet they have no obesity. It does not exist. Obesity is absent in Laos. Of course, they don't have the food supply to support that. But despite the absence of people being obese, they're highly diabetic. And so in Laos, we see diabetes being the result of starvation, of malnutrition. And here in America, it's the result of obesity, completely opposite. And so, you know, that really gives you a different insight into what diabetes is really all about. And it turns out it's a protective mechanism. It's an adaptation that Mother Nature gives us. It's a gift that she gives us that helps us survive in a place where the food supply is poor, like in Laos. Uh, is, now, when is you it, take that person that has the trait for diabetes out of Laos and you put them in America with fast food, suddenly they become an obese diabetic. So it's the environment that's really making these differences, but the underlying trait is a protective survival mechanism. Are you sure that genetic markers, genetic tendencies by race or ethnicity have nothing to do with this? Yeah, and not just that um, genetics. In fact, what we know now is that these traits that confer the, uh, the disease diabetes are what we consider epigenetic. In other words, they're modifications of our genes after our birth, and those are modified based on the food supply. And those, those epigenetic traits can also be transmitted. In other words, our, our offspring and our grandchildren can also receive those traits, even though they're not hard-coded into the, you know, the letters of the DNA code. They're still transmitted. You know, here there's a lot of talk about something called the social determinants of health. And sure. it's well accepted that poorer people have worse health outcomes. They do. I mean, that's no surprise, of course. But what is interesting is seeing the adaptations that come into play when the conditions aren't the way that we see them now. So again, thinking of diabetes not as a disease of obesity, but as an adaptation to starvation that helps survival, that's a different way of looking at diabetes. You know, another thing that we saw very often in Laos that was, you know, 100% part of the human condition there was anemia. Everyone we saw was anemic. They had low blood counts. And the reason was they have a high parasite burden. They're all carrying parasites. And the parasites are feeding, and of course, that's leading to this anemia. And what we didn't see, interestingly, was high blood pressure. Now, once we got rid of people's parasites and their blood counts came up, suddenly their blood pressure was going up. 
So we know also that, you know, blood pressure has to be able to go up in case we have parasites and we lose blood. So, you know, some of the things that we're stuck with in the, you know, developed world are, had their roots in the developing world when we didn't have the kind of, you know, hygiene and healthcare and vaccines. I mean, there's another one here in this country. People are railing against vaccines. They don't want to take the measles vaccine. They don't want to take the hepatitis vaccine. They don't want to take all these vaccines. In Laos, they line up for the vaccines because they know these diseases are deadly and they would love a vaccine for dengue. If they had a vaccine for malaria, they would line up for it. The Japanese encephalitis uh, vaccine, in other words, their vaccines are saving lives in front of your eyes. You know, here, because of so many people being immune, you know, we don't yet have so many complications, but we're starting to see it, of course, with these measles outbreaks, et cetera. When we were in Laos, uh, we found an epidemic, the largest concentration in the world of beriberi. It's a vitamin deficiency, vitamin B1 deficiency caused by a lack of thiamine. And once we learned that there was so much beriberi there and we started treating people, we were saving lives on a daily basis because of this very serious and uncommon vitamin deficiency. Well, it doesn't exist in the U.S. because everything that we eat is fortified. You've got your breakfast cereal and your flour and you've got your orange juice as vitamin D and calcium and your milk. I mean, everything is fortified. Of course, over there, they're dying from a, a lack of vitamin B1, you know, one of the most basic B vitamins. And as soon as we give that to people, their health improves in front of their, their, your eyes. It's amazing. So, you know, here we're over-vitaminized. Over there, they need vitamins. It's, they work there, you know. So It's amazing. So what is the takeaway? You, you've worked with the richest and with the poorest for uh, the vast majority of us middle-class people. I don't want to steal my thunder for the talk, but I'll, tell, I'll give you some little clues and some hints. And, and that is uh, wealth can buy health, but only about four extra years of life on average. And uh, the things that we can protect ourselves from with money are mostly cardiovascular diseases and sometimes the complications of diabetes. Unfortunately, what we can't protect ourselves against with extra money is cancer. And the neurological conditions, those don't seem to be related. You can have a whole boatload of money and you could still be in trouble with cancer and neurologic conditions. How do you translate that for a rich country, which we are, but with socialized medicine? Yeah, I mean, the idea is, is, you know, teach people prevention so that they can learn to prevent cardiovascular disease and then make sure that you're doing cancer screening because, you know, only way to make any inroads with this disease is by early detection. You know, we've got to be doing better cancer screening. Okay, well, as that's... As you know. As I know, yes. Cancer, breast cancer, as you know, yes. Dr. Mark Laponis, thanks so much, and I'm really looking forward to your talk at Idea Likewise, City. Libby, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. See you soon. That was Dr. Mark Laponis. He will speak at Idea City on Friday, June 21st. More and more patients are choosing medical assistance in dying as a means to end their suffering and to have what can be considered a good death. But the family home is often not the right place, and neither is the hospital. Assisted Dying Resource Centers is a new charity stepping in to fill the void. I talked to CEO Tom Foreman. There have been over 7,000 Canadians who've made this choice since it's become legal. So where did they do it? 
in Ontario, we're split about evenly between the hospital setting and the home setting. And, and the home setting could be your private residence, but it also could be a long-term care facility or an assisted living type of facility. So here in Ontario, we're about 50-50. And they allow it? Uh, it? It depends on the institution. If it's a faith-based institution, they may not uh, allow it, and they would require the patient uh, or the resident to uh, find another location. And we certainly know, we hear from physicians regularly, that they are looking for locations to take uh, their patients who are living in institutions where it's not permitted. And so we know that on a day-to-day basis, there is a struggle for people to find a place to die. How would it work? It's an access center. So we are designed, will be designed and set up so the physicians can bring their patients and have access to a space where they can provide medical assistance in dying, but they can also have access to space where they could do assessments for eligibility. And in addition, uh, we're intending to also provide grief and bereavement support programming for people who've had an experience of MAID. And so it really is about empowering people to have as much choice as possible in terms of their location of death. Would they come a few days before, a few hours before? So the the vision is really that they would come the day of. So these would be same-day services. We're not anticipating accommodating overnight stays. And this is exactly what they do in the hospitals now. So if you're not admitted to hospital and you go to a hospital for a made procedure, you go in the morning, um, you have the procedure, and it, the procedure is relatively quick, and, and that's that. So um, we would anticipate that these would be same-day. Uh, perhaps down the road, if people were having to travel long distances, we would uh, consider the possibility of having uh, accommodating people on an overnight. Uh, but initially, it will be coming in on the day. Is this modeled on any other jurisdiction? It's quite unique. There is no other model in the world designed to do specifically what we're intending to do. In uh, parts of Europe where it is permissible, uh, for example, people may be familiar with the Swiss model where they would uh, go to a um, an apartment and self-administer. The difference in Canada is that we do uh, most often, uh, we do physician-administered versus self-administration, although both are permissible. In the U.S., the system is all self-administration where it's permissible, um, and in many parts of Europe, it's self-administration or physician-administered, but not both. So we have both, and so we looked at other models around the world, and there really just wasn't anything out there, so we created our own model. So it will be a uniquely Canadian um, model. Are you anticipating any opposition to this? I can just imagine some of the criticisms, Death Factory or something like that. Certainly, I think that people who are opposed to the uh, notion of access to medical assistance and dying at large will have problems with this type of a project. We are not receiving any government funding. We don't anticipate receiving any government funding. We will be completely uh, dependent upon generous donations to keep ourselves uh, afloat, as it were, and be sustainable. How much money do you have to raise and what kind of service do you think that'll give you? So we currently have a fundraising campaign underway uh, with the goal of raising $200,000. And that $200,000 will enable us to secure a location have it up and running, decorate it, get, uh, have it uh, retrofitted for accessibility and ensure and get our programming in place. So for $200,000, uh, we will be able to be up and running. We anticipate in the long term that for an annual 
uh, budget of $350,000, we can run all of the program that we want. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. That was Tom Foreman, CEO of Assisted Dying Resource Centers of Canada. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, Faz Kazi, and Justin Eacock. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.